Jesse, and I'm really excited for you to tune in today and hear today's episode, but I did first want to give you a quick heads up that towards the end of today's episode, my guests and I talk about uh, some subject matter that may not necessarily be appropriate for some younger listeners. Uh, Basically, today's episode is about some of the coolest science experiments that have been conducted in the year 2020. Towards the end of today's discussion, me and my guests talk about uh, some recent medical research that looked at neurology and human sexuality and the ways that doctors are trying to better understand the links between the two of them. Uh, it's it's a really fascinating discussion. It's not explicit or anything like that, but I did want to give you a heads up because it, it may not be appropriate for some younger listeners in our audience. But with that said, I'm really excited for you to hear today's show. It was super interesting. It's really cool to hear about a lot of the innovations going on in the world of medicine, technology, and science. Here's today's show. All right, everyone. Well, hey, listen, I'm really excited about my guest today. Wendy Zuckerman is a science journalist, and she's the executive producer and host of one of the best podcasts that that you can possibly subscribe to. Not only is it really informative and super interesting, and you leave with uh, a better perspective on the world and kind of more information about how important things happen, and you get a lot of disinformation dispelled. It's also super fun and entertaining. My guest today is Wendy Zuckerman. She's the host of Science Versus. Uh, from from Gimlet Media, one of my, every show Gimlet does is great, but Science Versus is right there at the top of the list. Wendy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, hey, I'm really excited for us to dive in. We were just talking offline about uh, what it's like being podcasters working from home. And I, I feel like all of the innovations that, that we, you and I are utilizing right now are the results of tons of cool science experiments that were probably underappreciated over the years. Yes, yes. Like using my uh, my couch cushions to help with the echo. No doubt. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. There. I, well, I, well, listen, I'm using a literal cardboard box to hold up my microphone. So we have a lot of people to thank to be able to record today. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, hey, I, I so we were, I, we were trying to think about what what's a fun kind of topic we could do in the first episode of my show my show launched earlier this summer and the first episode was with a science writer and we, we talked about some of our favorite big ideas in science so for now that we're 2020 is finally coming to an end i figured it'd be fun to have you on and talk about some of our favorite experiments that we uh, were able to kind of read about and report about in 2020, kind of loosely, we, we both kind of took some liberties with the timing and kind of the, the definition of experiments. But dude, this seems like something that because of just the wild news cycle this year, there was a lot of cool stuff that kind of just went underappreciated. There really was. I I think um, it, it's been really nice and exciting to uncover and re-uncover some of that stuff in preparation to, to talking to you because, we, yeah, we've just been so swept up, obviously. Obviously, in the in the big news of the coronavirus and wanting to understand it and report on it as, as much as possible, but there has been so much other cool science going on, and it is it's just kind of delightful to to yeah. lean into that because the, the stuff I, I you know took a peek at the stuff you're talking about and I was just like yeah you know science yeah. did some great shit this year. It, it's totally true. And also, like, there's something it's this sounds very nerdy. And most of my work, I'm not I, I would never classify I've written about science, but I wouldn't uh, classify myself as a science journalist. But 
every time I, I do take on a project that involves a topic involving research or science or innovation, I get really encouraged. Like, it, there's this weird sort of, uh, you know, relationship between like kind of humanity, like the, the humanity that goes into the patience and dedication to really uncover some of these big truths. And then, you know, the actual discoveries on, on, on another side, Wendy, as someone who has spent your career studying science and reporting on it, are you are you optimistic about the future? Because so many people are just kind of scared and bummed out, you know, coming out of 2020. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm an optimistic person, so I am optimistic about the future. And I do, science, I think, plays a big role in that, the fact that I get to read it every day, because I'm ultimately reading about progress, about us understanding the world better from the the big to the little. And, you know, as you were kind of talking about when you get to delve into science, how lovely it is, it it made me think about how when I was choosing a career, uh, I initially wanted to be a foreign correspondent because I thought that sounded super (laughs) sexy. And, um, And I'm just so glad that I found science and science stories because politics and foreign correspondence is so dire it's just going yeah. we just circle the drain of of ideas um and and pretend that we're pro, you know moving forward i think yeah. but but science is is genuinely moving forward and it's it's genuinely understanding things and i i'm so glad that i took that path because um, yeah. it is it's 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 really remarkable like some of the stuff we're going to talk about today is is li- little advances but that it just are just really, are really exciting that we're there. Um, yeah. And I think about that with the coronavirus as well, like how little we knew back in March um, and, and how much we know today. It's, it is, it's really, it's really amazing. It, it really is. And, and, you know, it's funny, I've kind of done a lot of different types of journal, even on this show, we've had lots of different types of guests. We've had, you know, writers, directors, you know, musicians and, but I always love interviewing people that are into science and scientists themselves because the 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 the, the discipline requires a degree of being sort of pragmatic. But also when you kind of understand that one mystery just unlocks another, whenever you talk to anyone involved in science, there's sort of this optimistic wonder that is right there below the surface that it makes this stuff really fun to talk about. Yeah. And even when, you know, when I've been interviewing um, scientists about the coronavirus, which is, you know, so much of that is dire, you know, even within that, the joys of discovery and all the scientists are always very careful that like, you know, we spoke to someone, a producer on our show, Rose Rimler, we spoke to this guy who had really discovered um, one reason why people get um why young young people, young young men in particular, sometimes are, are vulnerable to the coronavirus. So you sometimes hear in the news because us young people, we're supposed to be we're yeah. supposed to be immune, and then every now <laughs> and then, you know, we're obviously not. Um, yeah. And so, really, sort of looking into why that is, and this researcher had had come up with a clue, basically a genetic mutation um, in in some people that might explain why they just can't fight the coronavirus. And, you know, within that, he was very careful to say that we discovered this through a a very sad situation, two brothers, they got very sick and and one died. But that still that moment of discovering, oh, this is 
the reason why. This was the particular genetic mutation. This is what it was doing in their body. This is why they had a, a difficult time fighting this. And now we can develop treatments to try and help people who might have a similar genetic mutation. So out of that sadness, what science brings us is, yeah. is solutions. Yeah. And that's so often the case. And that's, and I think some of the experiments we'll talk about now, it's, it's, you know, it, a lot of major innovations happen because humanity finds itself not always necessarily painted into a corner, but are faced with the problem that they haven't been, uh, you know, challenged with trying to overcome before. And that those problems often lead to really incredible solutions and breakthroughs. And so I know we have a lot to get to. Get to. So we each brought four of our favorite experiments that, that took place in 2020. Uh, and so, Wendy, why don't you kick us off? What is number four on your list? Oh, I actually didn't rank them. Um, oh, this is fun. Okay, okay. Which one? <laughs> which one should I talk about first? Uh, uh, but okay, okay. Uh, let me talk about uh, a study that we reported on for our probiotics uh, episode, which, oh, yeah, which came yeah. out earlier this year, and um, this was really diving into a lot of the research around uh, gut bugs because we we hear a lot about it that, you know, it's really exciting, this idea that there's like all this bacteria living in your gut that might play this important role in our health. And so over at Science Versus, we wanted to find out like, what exactly are these gut bugs doing? And amidst this, uh, came across this very fascinating study. uh, And it was done by Ted Dinan over in, um, in Ireland. And his big question was whether gut bugs could affect the brain. Um, mm. And this is something you hear, you know, even when you go to the store and you see probiotics, some of them, some of the, and even, you know, kombucha and that, the, the more brazen of, of the bottles <laughs> will suggest <laughs> that they could improve your your brain and your mental health. And so yeah. we wanted to, to look at the evidence behind it and, f- and found this study. So here, here's, what, here's what researchers did. So they, they took... Uh, some fecal samples from some depressed patients. And these were, were very depressed patients who, who had not gotten better with, with various kinds of treatment. And then to see whether, because um, the, the fecal samples, I should say, is a, is a fairly good indication of, of what's going on in your gut. Yeah. Um, it's not perfect, but it is a fairly easy way that scientists can kind of see, well, a bunch of that, that bacteria in your gut did just get crapped out. Uh, so they took the fecal samples from the depressed patients and then they fed it to some rats um, because mm. obviously we can't do that to humans. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it'd be difficult to find the volunteers for that. It uh, would, it would, <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. So I don't think I don't think you'd want the volunteers that volunteered for that. I don't. I think you know we'll, we'll just leave it to the rats. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not exactly a random sample of the population <laughs> yeah. um, who would volunteer for such a study. Yes, so. <laughs> So I got a random sample of rats, let's put it that way. Now, rats are um, coprophagic, which is the very fancy word for they eat crap, they'll eat their crap, their (laughs) friends' crap, they'll eat human crap. And when they eat it, some of that, some of the bacteria within the human uh, fecal sample, so what was in the human gut, actually transfers into the rat when they eat it, so when it kind of goes Mm. down the gullet. And the scientists actually tested for this to to make sure. Now, what they really wanted to know is whether this would change the rat's behaviour, having different gut bugs in there. 
And so what they did is they they tested the rats before they ate the poo, um, got them to like explore mazes, observe them with their friends. It's very funny when you actually think about <laughs> how you investigate rat behavior. Yeah. Then after they fed this poo to the to the rats, um, and and you know gave gave it a bit of time for the bacteria to make its happy home in there. Then they did they did all these tests again. And lo and behold, they found that there was a change in behaviour, that the the rats, you know, the researcher said, which is very funny to do on radio, they said the rats had become quote unquote depressed. Uh, So that meant that they weren't exploring their maze as as much as they they usually did and they weren't as social and usually rats are quite social and they weren't as social as they were before. And this wasn't, I, I know some listeners might be thinking, well, was it because the rats just ate poo and didn't like it? <laughs> that would bum anybody out. <laughs> Good bum yeah. anyway, even the rats <laughs> tend to be complimentary. Yeah. Maybe they prefer something else. Uh, but indeed there was a control um, and rats that were given fecal samples from people who weren't depressed, uh, they, their behavior didn't change. Wow. Now, Wendy, what's so interesting about that is – Generally, our understanding of how neurology works is that it's brain chemicals. You know, when, when people take antidepressants, you know, it, it you know, messes, well, I, messes with is the wrong word, but it affects how receptors work in the brain. But to think that there are elements in our gut that can actually dictate our mood and sort of our emotional state. It's really fascinating, and it's one of the things I love that you guys do on Science Versus is you look at sort of what a lot of people may think of as sort of more pseudoscience but actually take a scientific approach to kind of understanding some of the concepts. So it kind of takes a little bit of the woo out and helps us develop an understanding of how complex some of these systems that dictate our lives are, whether that's in technology or sort of, you know, from a physiological standpoint. So, Wendy, I guess what is the larger implication for potential research into how doctors can treat mental health in humans? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it is, that's the kind of question where we're at now. So I think what this study opened the door to, and it has been replicated um, by, a, a, by a, a different group, which we always love to see, um, what it what it starts to do is it opens the door for this connection. I do mm. not think we're at the point yet where we can say that gut bugs directly influence the brain, but it, it this says there's a mechanism there. And there have yeah. been later studies in humans, which are very difficult to do where, for example, they'll um, feed people with, oh, that's a terrible way to put it, but basically um, <laughs> give people with depression um, certain kinds of yogurt that is laced with yeah. certain kind of gut bugs and see whether there's a change in um, in their behaviour. So that, that's kind of where we're at now. But this opens the door. And what Ted Dynan, who who did led this study, told us was, you know, he's he's been he's a psychiatrist and he has been trying to treat depression for so long and and he just said this area has been in quite a rut and so this idea that just as you said that there is more going on than what is just in your brain that it could be these kind of things going on in our gut that is important because that 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 then like leads to leads us to a lot of exciting potential places um that you know it could help explain you know why maybe diet plays a role here um you know opening the door for certain kinds of probiotics to be helpful but having said that, the fact that there that there is so much excitement does lead 
and so much excitement but so much unknown, like to be on the precipice of yeah. knowledge also leaves you very vulnerable to being on the precipice of woo science, as you yeah. put it. And well. so right now we are just in what some might call the exciting place where we yeah. we see this potential and we don't know. Um, but it does also mean we're not at the point yet where we could start giving people certain probiotics and, bam, it's going to improve their depression. Um, so I think that's kind of that's kind of the caveat of where we are now. But but it is certainly a promising kind of innovation, especially for people kind of in the in the field of mental health that are trying to understand ways to kind of unlock different uh, remedies for people that that kind of, you know, suffer from different things. So what a fascinating experiment. Um, mine is a little bit different for my number four. It is it is some of the research that Ron Mallet is doing. And this one is a little bit I'm kind of cheating on this uh, on the on the construct a little here because uh, he's actually been doing this research for quite some time. Uh, Ron Mallet, I first I first heard about him and his research. Uh, he was profiled by a really kind of beautiful This American Life story about 50 15 years ago. Um, and his story is he's an astrophysicist and he's currently a professor at the University of Connecticut. And he lost his father uh, to a heart attack when he was just 10 years old. And his father was his hero. And he, shortly after that, he discovered H.G. Wells's kind of timeless sci fi book, uh, The Time Machine, and became obsessed with this idea of the ability for people to go back in time. And his whole kind of motivating factor was, well, if that was somehow discovered, maybe one day I could go back and see my father again, which I love science stories that have that sort of human touch to it, where, uh, you know, someone's trying to think about a big idea, but their reason for chasing after a big idea is because of something that we can all relate to. Even if even if their research seems kind of out of this world and, and hard to wrap your head around, everyone can relate to that impulse of grief. And that's why I felt like this was a really beautiful story. Wendy, have you heard of Ron Mallet before? I haven't. I haven't. So, so he, after he lost his father, he kind of dedicated himself to science. And as he got older, it wasn't until he got tenure at the University of Connecticut that he even made any of his research into the theoretical possibilities of time travel, even public, just because a wow. lot of people would hear that. And probably, you know, I think he, his fear was he would lose credibility. Of course, um, of course. But, but he used Einstein's theory of relativity as sort of a starting point. And notice that, you know, as Einstein did, there's a relationship between speed and also how time passes. And what the theory indicates is that the faster you're moving, the slower that time itself actually moves. And so he started a lot of his research kind of at that standpoint and then saw the relationship between time moving or, or able time moving, slowing down or moving backwards as it related to gravity. And so he started thinking about these these different ideas. And this year, he actually uh, was able to kind of conduct a theoretical experiment of what it would look like to bend, to not necessarily bend space-time, but to twist space-time to sort of create a, a portal that would, or like a wormhole that would allow you to go back into the past. And what he has done, at least on a theoretical basis, is Important suggest... Caveat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's been invented a time machine. How did we not cover this? 
<laughs> Hurry, let's go back and tell people about the probiotics. Right. Uh, <laughs> but what he did on a theoretical level was indicated that if you had the the a right the uh, the right size of like essentially like this ring of lasers, you could using light and, and gravity. And I'm 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 butchering. There's probably people who actually are physicists or into astro you know astrophysicists. They're like, no, you're kind of messing up some of the details. But essentially, on a theoretical basis. He, he's kind of proven that if you had the right mechanism, you could at least go back in time to the point that you turn the mechanism on. <laughs> like you couldn't reach back into the past. But if you were to turn the mach- this, this, you know, kind of machine on with the right uh, uh, sort of uh, arrangement of lasers and light to simulate uh, essentially like a mini sort of uh, black hole, you could at least go back in time and send information back to the point of when you turn the machine on. It is a very, very long way from actual time travel, but it is a pretty significant breakthrough in our understanding of space-time, potentially. And that is a mystery that I feel like has sort of baffled scientists and created a lot of debate in the scientific community going back into like the the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics, which was really controversial at the time and kind of led to these rivalry, these really interesting rivalries with people like Neil Bohr's and Albert Einstein. It's a fascinating topic anytime that you have this big sci-fi idea intersect with actual scientific research i always find that really really interesting oh for sure for sure and like space time is just just captures the imagination in a way that very few things do yeah i mean what what a fun at least theoretical you know experiment yeah, I'm sure as someone who writes in science, how often do you get asked like, hey, Wendy, when do you think we'll have and fill in the blank a flying skate like back to the future car skateboards or time travel? When how can often my do DeLorean you have to- do this? Right. Yeah. <laughs> when is my invisibility suit going to be here? We <laughs> will promise this. How often do you get questions from <laughs> listeners about those kind of, you know, big ideas that on a theoretical level you could cover, but it's kind of hard to find that practical grounding for. I mean, I think everyone just just loves knowing about this stuff. I mean, we still haven't got the jetpacks right and surely surely that should have been priority number one right like (laughs) as a child of the 80s and 90s i'm incredibly disappointed by 2020 for reasons that have nothing to do with a pandemic or politics that's right where is our jetpack yeah i do think yeah no we 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 do always get asked you know is is this at all possible the 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 multiverse theory is one that i think is also super fascinating and this idea you know that there's there's lots of us different parallel universes of us hanging around or multiverses. Yeah. Um, I know it's so, it's so mind boggling. It is the true definition of mind boggling. It, it really is. I mean, you can almost feel your brain working just to try to like, think about the things that these really smart astrophysicists and scientists uh, are, are suggesting, but it's really fun to kind of talk about. And I, you know, I want to move on to, to number three, but as one thing that I think your show has done well and, and I feel like is really suited for the audio form. You know, we've seen other shows, you know, Radio Lab also does a great job of this, of taking these big high-minded ideas and using sort of narrative and different sort and and personality just to help people understand them better. Um, you know, do you kind of, you know, I, I, I don't want to take too much time, but is your background in like, in terms of like your academic uh, background, how did that inform your approach to how you cover these ideas to make them palatable to audiences that this is kind of beyond their intellectual grasp a lot of times? Yeah. So I studied, I did not study journalism or 
creative writing or anything like that. I studied law and and biomedical science uh, because in Australia, uh, well, university isn't free. Uh, it, it's it's very cheap, so you can stay there for a long period of time yeah. and just never grow up. Um, but I think I where I mean I have this amazing team that that helps me to construct all of these stories that you hear on the on the podcast, but I think for me, um, science didn't come easy. Actually. I, I, I really loved it. Um, when I was studying it at uni, but the concepts didn't come quickly and, and once they hit, they hit. But I think that actually was very, very helpful because yeah. I don't assume that people know, know anything because why should they, we, if we haven't been taught it, um, and haven't had really time to process ideas, then why should, people know them. Um, and I think that that is very helpful because sometimes I will read, uh, an, an article that that's in, you know, the, the popular press. And it's just like making all these assumptions that, that a reader or a, or a listener would know things. And, and, you know, by now I've been a science journalist for more than 10 years. So I know, I know a lot of things, but I think it, it's just, it's, it's not helpful because it makes yeah. people feel silly when actually they shouldn't feel silly. They, they just haven't had the opportunity to know these things. And I think what was also helpful is my dad um, has just is always telling me like that I, I'm a teacher and if, um, mm. and if my, he calls my students, but I would say my listeners, cause sometimes, you know, we do get gripes on the show and people being like, but what about this? And you didn't talk about this. And, and dad's, you know, dad's always like, you never get defensive, you know, you're the teacher. And if the students didn't understand, you need to explain it to them better. And I think that's such a good approach, um, to, to take, you know, science journalism that, you know, it's always my job and my team's job to explain things well, and that it's not people's fault if they don't understand things. Yeah. Well, I, I really look at shows like yours and I really think you're kind of carrying on the legacy of people like Carl Sagan, who kind of, you know, first sort of introduced the that sort of mix of poetry and science in a way that really compelled people that might not otherwise be interested because it was sort of just outside the realm of what they were good at at school. And I feel like science versus and you do such a great job at that. So, you know, uh, speaking of that and, and big, interesting uh, kind of baffling ideas that are made to be easily understood. What is your number three, Wendy? Okay, number three, I, um, I'm i going to take a look at platypuses. So going from um, the mind-bending world of, of physics uh, to the to the duck bills platypus. Now, now, now you, you grew up in Australia. And so, so for American listeners who know of a duck bill platypus, but has never really seen one in the wild, d- describe why, what makes them so interesting. Oh, they're just, it's as if nature just put a bunch of weird stuff together in a blender <laughs> and then just spat out this animal. I mean, it's got a duck bill. It's got, um, it's got like fur that's a little bit like, I want to say a beaver. Um, it ha- the 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 males have a venomous spur, um, oh. I, which is fabulous. And then this year, scientists discovered uh, that these animals, when you when you spray or when you shine UV light on them, they glow blue. Wow, uh, which is so cool uh, because we didn't know this because normally their their coat is like a sort of pooey brown colour. Yeah. Um, and the, the story of how scientists discovered this, and it was it was very fun because we we reported on this the week of the election because uh, the, the research came out pretty soon 
like around that time and, you know, during the election for everyone, no matter your politics, a very stressful time, middle of COVID um, as well. (laughs) To say the least. To say, yes, yes. And and so when this new story came out, we just thought, oh, my gosh, this is so beautiful that thing from what we were talking about at the beginning of, of, our, of our chat, you know, this idea that while politics is swirling around to drain, science is uncovering that the, the platypus glows blue. Um, and, and so the story of how the researchers uh, d- discovered this, there's a, a team um, from Wisconsin. And it was quite fun because we spoke to Paula Anik, um, who was the lead author, but she said that it, it all started when uh, one of her colleagues was, it all started with without the platypus. I should do some nice signposting here. It was when, when one of her colleagues was out in the woods and I, I think he was studying lichen or something. And, mm. and lichen becomes much easier to find when you're using a UV light. And so he's like walking around the woods in Wisconsin with this like UV light and and then all of a sudden he sees this flash of pink and he's like, what? And it turned out it was a squirrel huh. and a squirrel also has, has this effect, which is called biofluorescing. Wow. And we didn't know that a squirrel biofluoresces pink. Um, and so from there, the researchers were like, what other animals do this? Uh, you know, this this is weird. Like, and so they drove out and they took some took some apples and cookies. They truly did, uh, being the good nerds that they are, um, and went on a on a field trip to the Field Museum uh, of Natural History in Chicago. And the way they uh, that Paula told us this story was super fun. It was, you know, they they turned off all the lights at the at the museum at the room that they were in. Um, and they had their headlamps on and were sneaking around and they were they were out to look specifically and they had their UV lights um, and they wanted to, to see whether the platypus biofluoresces because the platypus is this like weird – it's like a, it's just a weird animal. It's a it's a yeah. mammal, but it lays eggs. Um, not to mention all the weird stuff I mentioned before. And so they were like, if a weird like like from an evolutionary perspective, if this like weird, you know, outsider animal biofluoresces, this would really open the door to to other animals. And then so you know, with the in the cover of darkness, they they flash the light, and bam, you know, this bright sort of greeny blue comes out at them. And, and, you know, and since then, so since this, this paper was reported, um, the, the producer Nick Del Rose uh, has been following it very closely. He was the one who sort of discovered this for our team. Um, and he gave me this big list of all these other animals that are biofluorescing now. So the Tassie devil biofluoresces um, blue wow. as well around certain parts of its faces. Um, wombats, bilbies, um, which are bilbies like a small um, kangaroo. So basically, you know, all, all these famous Aussie animals are just out there biofluorescing. It's like it's just like all of the the Aussie animals are like going to a rave together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they look normal at the daytime, but you turn the lights out and turn the black light on. You're like, oh, these guys are ready to party now. So, so fluorescent fluorescent platypuses and a number of other animals. Is there a, like a biological or evolutionary reason for them to to glow, or is that something that scientists are still trying to determine? It's it's a great question. So so we we asked Paula what what this might be used for, and um, the the classic things always come up. One is it's a sexy thing to attract a mate. Um, you know that that's always the the one you hear first whenever they're like, oh, that's a weird 
pretty thing you can see. Yeah, look what I can do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, ah. sort of like a rave thing. Like, hey, look at that one's really, that one's shining purple. Yeah. Right? Much like glow sticks. Exactly. Yeah. It's all for the yeah. sexiness. Um, so one idea is, is attracting mates. Another idea is it might be used as a cloak. Um, like perhaps if if predators can see UV light, maybe this might confuse them somehow. Yeah. Um, so that that's another idea. But but it's unclear at this point because we didn't know this happened. And so it's just like step one, it happens. Step two, yeah. why? And another sort of fun thing is when I asked Paula, do platypuses or now wombats and Tassie devils, do they see each other as blue? Like, because we obviously see them as brown, but I'm like, oh, from the yeah. platypus's perspective, what does this mean? And she was like, we don't know because wow. – but that's such a it's a cool idea that you know, anytime I, I feel like we are reminded of the fact that the way we perceive the world is not an objective way that the world is, is very yeah. fun and very humbling. Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, when you read about research of just like the spectrum of color that humans can perceive versus some other animals that we can just kind of inspect how their eye works. And it's like, man, there's this whole spectrum of color on both sides that are just outside of our perception but other, you know, creatures that we s- share this planet with can see it is a really interesting and really humbling idea. Yeah, yeah. It's so, it's just, it's so much fun to think about. And not only can they see more colors, a lot of them can also apparently glow in the dark if in the presence of UV light. Yes. So they, they keep one-upping us. <laughs> they, they really do. <laughs> so, so, Wendy, for my number three, this one actually kind of came on my radar, uh, you know, pretty recently. I had read a little bit about this, but the New York Times read uh, uh the New York Times posted a really interesting story this week called The Social Life of Forest. And it's based on the work of a researcher named Susan Simard. And basically what she did is she looked at the relationship between plants that are found in a forest at, at a level kind of beneath the soil. And what she found is that a lot of plants that on the literally on the surface don't seem to share any sense of uh, any manner of connection below the surface are actually kind of in this sort of entangled world of kind of fungus and roots that tie them all together. And the, the, the sort of underground system that connects them all is so complicated, and we're just beginning to understand it, but it seemed to indicate that uh, trees can actually not only share uh, nutrients and things like that, but uh, this is from, I'm going to read a line from the, the, the New York Times uh, story. Carbon, water, nutrients, alarm signals, and hormones can pass along tree to tree through these subterranean circuits. Uh, resources tend to flow from the oldest and biggest trees to the youngest and smallest. Chemical alarm signals generated by one tree prepare nearby trees for danger. Uh, they even found that if, if a tree... It might be dying soon if it's just kind of getting old and kind of sick and it might be dying it will actually send its carbon out to other trees that might need it more like tr- trees are turned out to be pretty selfless if we're going to use sort of a uh, uh personification uh there but the reason that i found this interesting is not only obviously just on the surface no pun intended it's it's very interesting because it kind of reorients how we understand how forests operate um, but it also, one of the things that researchers are really interested in sort of 
just on a kind of philosophical level, is the idea of natural selection and what they call kin selection, which is that, you know, kind of natural selection kind of presupposes that the the strongest in a species will fight to survive. But kin selection and, and other kind of natural mechanisms that we're beginning to understand, you know, they, they give the example of something like ants who will sacrifice their lives or bees that will f- sacrifice their lives for their queen that there might even be more to our understanding of natural selection than we then first kind of proposed by Darwin. A really interesting study because it has a lot of implications. But even if you just look at these n- underground networks that allows plants to com- sort of, quote unquote, communicate with each other, I found like, man, what is just a really interesting way to, you know, introduce a new understanding of something that I feel like a lot of people take for granted. For sure. For sure. I mean, Without getting pessimistic, it does make me think of all the damage we've done to the forests without yeah. even realizing it. And then there was yeah. this damage that was happening below the surface as well. Yeah. And, and, and even when you think about how the human body operates and how, you know, it's all sort of interconnected by these really complex networks of, you know, blood vessels and cells and nerves you know, re-understanding forest as those complex networks. And if you affect one part of the forest, you're kind of affecting the larger forest. It does kind of give a moral, a a kind of new moral imperative to things like deforestation and just our understanding of the importance of environmental protection. And if you take away these sort of keystone um, species, you know, what what happens? And if you're taking away the big old trees and they're the ones that are giving the carbon to the to the babby trees. Yeah. What's, what's to become of our forests? I know yeah. that's, that is, that is wild though. That is really great to think about. I mean, yeah. not that we've destroyed things, but just that there is this secret world going on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And who knows? There could be blue platypuses just running amok in there too. Just <laughs> <laughs> We don't want to ruin their rave zone. You know, we got to save these places. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I do remember um, several years ago when scientists started to discover that there was, I mean, to take us back to kind of the gut bugs and the microbiome, that they, they discovered that, that forests might have their own almost microbiome, which is sort yeah. of what you're talking talking about here as well that there's like funguses and bacteria under the surface that are all communicating as well and helping the trees communicate and having like a chat with the root systems and and everyone's kind of this is like it's really putting like symbiosis on a whole other level yeah i feel like it's like oh it's this is like a real life avatar situation i didn't know that (laughs) all right wendy so uh what do you have for your number two on your list okay okay number two um all right. Well, this one is is another little cheat since it was it was all supposed to be this year, but I I've kind of re- that's okay. That's okay. reinterpreted. Yeah. But what I uh, I'm going to talk about a, a incredibly fun NASA experiment that people can expect next year, and how I'll sneak it into this year is I'm sure scientists are hard at work on it this year um, <laughs> to perfect it for next year. But but people are going to be hearing a lot about this experiment because what NASA scientists are going to be doing is launching a spacecraft which is going to smash into an asteroid. Mm. And the goal of this is to move the asteroid so that if one day a giant rock is heading towards Earth, that perhaps we know what to do about it. Mm. 
Now, now, Wendy, when they when they when you say they want to smash into the asteroid, are they using some sort of like explosive, or is this just a matter of force to see if you can like change the trajectory of the asteroid itself? This is literally so. It's called the Dart Mission, and what they're doing, I'll, t- I'll tell you a little bit more about it. So okay. they've got this spacecraft, which is about the size of a refrigerator box, um, and it's got these big solar panels that, when they're kind of fully extended, are around 19 meters from end to end, which uh, is about uh, more than 60 feet. Um, when we spoke to the the lead guy, Andy Cheng, who's heading up this mission. I was like, is it like a strange bird flying? And he was like, eh, a very strange bird. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, no, 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 no. Um, and the plan is that this spacecraft is going to just fly into the asteroid at a very high speed and try and push it off. Okay. Off its mark, so no explosives yeah. required. This isn't this isn't this isn't like a Bruce Willis situation. This is let's just give it a little push and see if we can push it out to another planet far, far away. Exactly. Well, I, it won't even do that, really. I mean, so so this so what it what its target of this poor little spacecraft. So you've got it's the size of a refrigerator, and what it's hitting is this asteroid that's called Diddy Moon. And Diddy Moon is 160 meters across. And I'm sorry, I didn't do the translations this time. Um, no, no, that's okay. That's a, you, don't have to dumb it, you don't have to dumb it down for us. Uh. Well, I, but what I do have, well, I, what I do have though is it's about the size of six blue whales long ways. Now I understand. You're right. <laughs> um, so if you kind of imagine that scale, it's really yeah. just going to kind of go poof. In, in a way, it's sort of the, the poor spacecraft will turn into smithereens yeah. and hopefully it'll nudge it off off its course, the asteroid off its course just a little bit. But what is, is kind of super cool is this whole thing, you know, this idea that the rocket scientists of our time are like, oh, this is the solution to an asteroid apocalypse. You're going to smash it. Smash yeah. it. It sounds like something a two-year-old <laughs> came up with. But it's actually an incredibly technological feat because just to give you a sense of it both the asteroid and the spacecraft are moving incredibly quickly so the spacecraft's going to be zooming towards the asteroid at nine times the speed of a moving bullet oh, wow. uh, andy cheng described this as it's going to be like hitting a bullet with another bullet because oh, it's man. all happening in space everything's moving so quickly and so that's the task ahead so they have to sort of make sure if you, if you think about I mean, Apollo 13, the movie where they're doing that sort of, where they've got to do the moonshot and they're like, yeah, oh, we, you yeah. know, we only gotta have it. slingshot it. Yeah. yeah, they got to slingshot it and they got to get it through this key, tiny keyhole or else nothing's going to work. And so it, it's a similar sort of situation. So they've had to plan exactly how this poor spacecraft is going to make its way around, around, you know, from Earth to this asteroid. And that's why, so it's going to launch, the mission launches in July 2021 and it's only going to impact this asteroid in September of 2022. Oh, wow. And this is amazing. And just to give you a little bit of um, of context of this asteroid, so it is not on target to hit Earth, which is very good news. <laughs> yeah. um, because the stakes aren't quite as high. No, no. Uh, but ju- just to sort of put it into context, though, of how potentially dangerous asteroids are. So this one, which serves the six blue whales long ways, it's not that long when you think about it, um, but if it did hit a major city, it would destroy a large city and its surrounding areas. 
um, is the predicted, like an asteroid of that size. Now, luckily, um, scientists estimate that an asteroid of that size would only hit Earth one in every 20,000 years. So we'd have to be very lucky if it was in, uh, very unlucky, sorry, if it was in our lifetime. Um, And the one that hit the dinosaurs, if you're wondering, because of course you think about asteroids, you're either thinking about Bruce Willis or dinosaurs. that that asteroid was around um, twelve to fourteen kilometers, um, so way, 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 way bigger. Yeah, a lot, a lot more blue whales. A lot more blue whales. <laughs> That's right. You're going to run out of run out of fingers for how many blue whales you've got. And so this is going to be a fun thing to look forward to next year. I think we're going to yeah. hear a lot about asteroids and this and this this crazy mission. Yeah, intergalactic bumper cars. Yeah. You know, it's very exciting. Well, it's funny. My number two actually has to do with, uh, you know, research into asteroids as well. And it it takes place, uh, you know, right now in Australia. The Japanese space agency, they spent actually six years trying, you know, uh, sending a spacecraft to an asteroid. And their goal wasn't necessarily to look at like disaster circumstances, but to get a better understanding of sort of the birth of the galaxy and the solar system. Because a lot of the materials that, according to to a lot of to many researchers, a lot of the materials found on asteroids are pretty much undisturbed from the time of basically the sort of the creation of our of our solar system and galaxy. So in order to understand more about the birth of 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 our, you know, kind of little corner of space in the universe, they wanted to get a sample of the material on that asteroid. Now they built a spacecraft that was able to it took 6 years to get there and uh or it took 6 years total to get there and back, but they were able to get a small collection of dust and rocks and this they left the spacecraft out there but were able to kind of send it back to earth in a capsule which just landed last week in the australian desert now it's on its way to to japan to be analyzed so we probably won't get a lot of answers into early next you know until early next year but it it will potentially offer scientists a really interesting look at some of the materials that are kind of in our solar system that are not really well understood because they've been so difficult to access. Now, this isn't necessarily something like asteroid mining, which you kind of read about in science fiction and different uh, kind of futurists, but it is an interesting step to be able to collect material that is out in the solar system that has previously been totally unobtainable to kind of research for new purposes. Uh, I think this is this kind of idea idea of being able to reach asteroids is such an interesting new innovation that really has sort of been underappreciated in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, that was, that was amazing. That did, did you see those images of the, of the capsule coming back over the Australian yeah, so desert? Cool. Yeah. So amazing. Just this sort of light streaking across the yeah. desert and then it gets closer and closer until it just lands on, uh, on a thank you to the, to the Japanese space agency. For, uh, <laughs> at for le- at least they aimed, it, they aimed it out there, you know, like, they're like, Oh, let's, you know, we, we need a big landing zone. So let's use the Australian outback. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it was that. That was phenomenal. I mean, I just this this the massive space that is and that is required. I mean, obviously, we're talking about space, but you just think how far that capsule, yeah. like where it came from, where the, the adventure that it's been on, to then pop 
back in the in the desert and now we're going to uncover what on earth it's about. I, I, yeah. I remember actually when Hayabusa landed on the asteroid and that was a crazy cool thing because for kind of the same reasons that um, when you think about this little space spaceship that's going to crash into the asteroid because you're just talking about the immensity of space and then you have to send launch something that yeah. is on target and is going to find this tiny little asteroid, you know, relatively speaking. Um, I, yeah, I, I remember the excitement in the air when when it landed and I, yeah. I, I can't believe now it's back. Now it's back home. Yeah, it's very cool. I'm very excited to see what they find. All right. So uh, that was number two. Asteroids were, were number two on both of our lists. All right. It's that time. The number one, your number one favorite experiment or, or sort of uh, innovation, uh, kind of scientific insight of 2020 that probably was pretty underappreciated because of everything going on in the world. Wendy, what is your number one? Okay. Okay. So this study was one that we reported on for our episode on orgasms. Um, and kind of this episode was born out of just wondering, like, what is it that people are interested in right now? Because, you yeah. know, particularly like living in New York, you're in the middle of a of a pandemic for a lot of the year. We just like couldn't leave our houses. We're back to that now, basically. And it's like, what are people doing all day? <laughs> well, if they're <laughs> not having... Occupying their time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and so we wanted to look into this question of orgasms and particularly female orgasms, which uh, have been a little bit of a mystery to science um, and to <laughs> people's bedrooms for some time. <laughs> and so one of our questions was around, you know, what is going on in the brain uh, when people orgasm? And um, Hannah Harris-Green, our producer on this episode, found this very, very funny study. So here's what uh, Dr. Nan Wise is the researcher, the the brain's child of this study, Um, and here's what she did. She got, so 10 women, so a small study, uh, but useful since we really don't know much about what's going on in the brain during orgasm. Yeah. And she basically, bottom line, put them in a brain scanner, uh, put sort of 10 women in a brain scanner and then got them to climax. So masturbated until they climaxed. But for if you are designing this experiment, there's actually quite a lot of issues you've got to deal with. And the first one is head movement. So if anyone listening has had to get an MRI, maybe for a medical purpose, you know you're told, keep your head still. But when you're masturbating, sometimes that's a little tricky. And so to get over this, Dr. Nanwise invented a helmet that she called the (laughs) Hannibal Lecter happy helmet. It's very, very creepy. It's made of a plastic mesh that went over the top of people's faces. Uh, sort of think about like, um, fence wire meshing okay. kind of that. Yeah. And it's got the eyes poked out, poked out so you can see, um, and then a mouth poked out so you could breathe. And then, and then, so that was sort of problem number one that kind of kept the women's heads in, in sort of straight, so they didn't move around too much. But then there's another problem is that if, again, you've ever had an MRI, you'll know that it is very, very loud. There's like this like boom, 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 boom noise that's happening. And in part of the experiment, she asked, so, hey, that's, that's very distracting um, if, if you're sort of trying to get into a nice headspace about everything. So she gave <laughs> yeah. the women earplugs. But then as part of the experiment, she also got their partners into the MRI room to try and stimulate um, okay. 
to try and stimulate the women. But then this created its own problem because the partners, with all that loud noise and the women wearing earplugs, the partners couldn't hear whether they were doing anything that was useful, whether the women were starting to <laughs> orgasm, whether they had finished orgasming. And so what Dr. Nanwise had to create was this weird system where the the women in the MRI would press a button when they were starting to orgasm, indicating to the partners, like, keep going, you're doing a good yeah. job. But then Nan Wise would see that this button was being pressed and then she would have to sort of tell that through a um, – through like a system where, where she described herself as, as sounding like a deranged stewardess. So then she would sort of <laughs> relay that to the partners to be like, orgasm has begun. And then it continued until then they pressed the button when it was orgasm over. You have to wonder if if when when, you know, this particular scientist was was pursuing this profession, if she was like, this is where it will take me one day. (laughs) She surely could have run. I mean, I asked her if she could have orgasmed under these circumstances um, and because most of the women in the trial were able to. And uh, and she actually said that she was the test pilot because she had to do this so many times. (laughs) She she was. It's so funny. She said she should have gotten frequent flyer miles for the amount of times <laughs> that she did it because she had to keep sort of see- seeing whether she wasn't moving her head enough um, to get clear pictures. Um, so so she was able to do it. Very, you know, very intrepid scientist. Uh, yeah. So were, Scientifically. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So were a lot of women in this trial. Um, and what they were able to find as a result of this is, in the words of, of Dr. Nan Wise, that having an orgasm is a big brain event Um, and so Mm. it lit up areas responsible for emotion and pleasure and reward um, and this sort of thing and um, and one area of the brain the the hypothalamus um, in particular got very excited which if uh, if you possibly was studying biology in textbooks it's sometimes known this part of the brain for playing a role in the four f's which is feeding fighting fleeing and fornication so well it's so interesting too and and it's that you know kind of in 2020 where reputable scientists are willing to kind of do very intricate research into topics that maybe previous generations would avoid because of social taboos but i but there really is real value into sort of understanding neurological mechanisms and their links between things from everything from gut health to sexuality you know really does have scientific validity and it's just kind of fun to kind of see how scientists are tackling problems and kind of situations that previous generations may not have even thought about yeah, I mean, I, I think it is really important. I mean, orgasms are a big part of a lot of people's lives and they give people a lot of joy. So why why shouldn't science better understand them? Because if if some people aren't able to orgasm, if some people need surgery for, um, say, they have, you know, a disease in like around their genitals and doctors need to complete surgery and if they haven't studied orgasms and what nerves you need to complete an orgasm, then they're going in blind. And they could, you yeah. know, and there are stories of people who've needed surgery, needed medical care, and and then unable to orgasm after that. And that is awful. And that is partly, if that's happening, you know, that's because we don't understand enough and because we're too afraid and too embarrassed to study this. And I, I just don't think we should be. It's something yeah. that is a is a big is a big part of life. So let's understand yeah. it. 
Yeah, I mean, procreation of the species really kind of depends on a good understanding well, of how human right. sexuality the, works. Uh, you know? the Darwinian model to help <laughs> us get the funding, let's do it. Yeah, yeah. whatever we need to do. Uh, well, Wendy, my number one isn't uh, isn't as a uh, uh, kind of. Uh, interesting, but I do feel like it may, especially a lot of people are thinking right now about how certain uh, medical treatments uh, sort of interact with us and how, especially with kind of all these vaccine developments and we're learning more about RNA and uh, different ways that scientists are looking at how to kind of inject things into our body that will kind of help us um, not only fight disease, but maybe even kind of, uh, you know, proactively battle things and and also kind of do restorative things. And that's why my number one was research that was recently published uh, from professors at Penn State University uh, who are collaborating with professors at Cornell. And I'm going to skip a lot of the details because if people want to, they can go to the journal Science and read the research entitled Electronically Integrated Mass Manufactured Microscopic Robots. That's the actual name of a title. You can tell that went through like a good headline, right? It's not even a verb. It's just like, we're going to throw a lot of cool adjectives in front of robots and you're going to want to read it. But essentially what it is, is using a lot, a combination of really sort of chemical engineering, traditional engineering, and understandings about uh, physiology and biology, they were able to create these, for lack of a better term, uh, nanorobots that they can actually inject into the human body that they can control remotely to do very delicate surgeries to repair conditions and to treat conditions that were previously really, really difficult for doctors and scientists to address just because of how delicate the body is. And so even though there are a lot of details that are pretty complicated, I feel like this research and sort of the experiments that led to it could lead to really cool innovations and hopefully alleviate suffering in a lot of people who up to now traditional medicine or even kind of cutting edge medicine hasn't been able to address. The The world of nanotechnology, I feel like, is such an interesting um, field and will play such a big role in our future that it's cool to see it kind of applied in a way that could immediately, hopefully in the next few years, impact a lot of people who may be suffering from treatable conditions that we just weren't able to sort of access the area of the body that would be required to kind of alleviate those people's sufferings and hopefully make them healthy. So really interesting stuff. Um, Wendy, I really appreciate you coming on today. It's been so fun talking about this and I definitely encourage people to check out Science Versus. They can also follow you on Twitter at Wendy Zuck. Wendy, real quick, uh, what are some topics and shows that you're really excited about that you're working on uh, coming up for 2021? Um, so our last episode of the season's coming out in a couple of days and that is on magic mushrooms and that has been really, really interesting and that, um, and and exciting as well. Um, and then for next season, oh, who knows where the world will be next season. (laughs) Um, so I think we'll, we'll just, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but, uh, but you know, we'll be, we'll be following whatever, whatever breakthroughs are out there. That's for sure. Awesome. Well, hey, if every listener listening to this, definitely go subscribe to Science Versus. You will be smarter and more interesting and very entertained. Uh, you'll be smarter and more interesting for listening. You'll be very entertained while you're listening. Wendy, thanks again so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode of Listed on the Ironclad Content Network. Hey, if you like the show, I know every podcast asks you to do it, but it really does help. If you like this show, 
leave a rating and review. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.